Hello and welcome to episode zero of The Boys in Short Pants, a new podcast about Canadian politics. My name is Laurent Carboneau. And I'm Aitzen Rainville. And uh, today we're going to be just describing to you what this podcast is going to be about, what we're going to, to talk about more generally, why we're doing this, who we are. So we'll start off with that. I'm a, I'm a guy who's worked on some NDP campaigns in the past in a, in a couple of different provinces. I've also lived abroad in the U.S. and the U.K. And I'm a student at Carleton's political management program, and uh, they will absolutely love the press they're going to get from this. I am also a student in Carleton's political management program, hence uh, how we met. I am a former conservative political staffer. I worked on the Hill for about a year and a half all in. I've worked on a couple campaigns across Canada, and I'm uh, a big fan of Canadian politics. So what we're doing, why we're doing this is there is a real gap right now in uh, the Canadian political podcasting space. Uh, in the States, you really have no shortage of options uh, from a wide variety of outlets. Uh, but we thought that Canada could really use an independent voice uh, talking about political issues and uh, doing some analysis. Uh, and especially because both of us have, are both, uh, I'm an NDP and he's conservative. So we'll have a sort of different takes from each other and be able to, uh, to have an interesting conversation. Especially a lot of the podcasts that currently exist are from news outlets and they focus on hard news and uh, news analysis where I think we want to step back a little from that and have a sort of more political analysis, be able to, to sort of deconstruct things and, and lay out the table and really discuss things a bit more fulsomely than this, the news cycle really allows. Typically, we're going to have a couple of segments per episode. Uh, we'll be doing uh, some hot takes, uh, fresh, serve fresh and hot. We'll try and do some interviews from time to time. Uh, we'll definitely do a reading series uh, just because... Uh, Honestly, Canadian media is home to some of the world's absolute worst punditry, uh, and we, we need to make fun of those people just a lot more than they, they're currently made fun of publicly. And I think also we want to do definitely some deconstruction of uh, talking points or uh, different parties' approaches to things. Yeah, just dig into the talking points a little bit, see what the substance is uh, behind, behind the message, um, because often that's what you see spat over and regurgitated across message boards and the comment sections of Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, is the talking points. And let's take a look and see what the substance behind them is. So, so to really kick off the substance of our first episode, uh, we want to do a little bit of a year in review. I think the, the long 2016 counting back to uh, the federal election last October, October 2015, uh, and talk a little bit about how the first year of the liberal government has kind of gone and highlight some, some real successes and failures uh, and sort of talk about why we think each is, each is which. Uh, Tim, do you want to kick us off there? Yeah, I guess. Uh, do you want to start with top three or bottom three? Uh, let's let's start with the top. It's fun to that way we can we can sort of rip into them at the end and, and be able to go more into gory detail on that. All right. So the format here is we uh, we separated ourselves and came up with our top three and bottom three uh, sort of challenges or issues that the Liberal government faced over the past year, uh, with little forward-looking ones as well, and uh, we're effectively surprising each other with them to see what uh, the other came up with. Uh, so starting with number three on my list of the probably the issues or challenges that the Liberal government managed best, uh, this might be a little surprising, uh, is pipelines. I think their handling of the recent announcement of uh, Trans Mountain and Line 3, as well as uh, Kinder Morgan, came across pretty well, uh, generally, in that 
most people, I think, will be happy. They did the token environmental measures. Uh, they are able to say that they approved two significant pipeline projects, which has really bolstered uh, their credibility in Alberta. Uh, so I think they sort of struck the right balance, but it also hasn't been sort of dogging them in the news as some other issues would. Uh, I think that there's still a lot of ground for them to cover in terms of pipelines. So the issues, you know, not it's off the front page, but it'll certainly be back on the front page once uh, the shovels are in the ground and the protesters are chaining themselves to the pipes, including Elizabeth May, <laughs> including Elizabeth May. I think she's going to be the first one in line to chain herself to the pipes. I imagine her having a closet full of chains and handcuffs with which to uh, fasten herself. <laughs> perhaps perhaps a touch spicy there um no i think i think you're right that that's probably going to end up being a political win for them more broadly though i, sh- I should note of course that Atiana is, is from fort mcmurray so he has like a inborn love of pipelines that is simply uh, ca- cannot be reasoned with um no i think that's going to end up being pretty good for them on economic credibility for you know however you want to spin that uh, I do think they're probably going to take a beating for it in BC. Uh, they have some sitting cabinet ministers in fairly tough writings that if the NDP is smart or good at politics, which is never a guarantee, uh, they'd be able to make some hay of in, in downtown Vancouver and knock off you know, people like Jody Wilson-Raybould or uh, Harjit Sajjan. Um, so, John, uh, John Wilkinson as well. John Wilkinson. Uh, so I think yeah, you've got a point, but I think that is going to present a challenge for them down the road. Uh, you know, Anything else to add on the pipelines? I mean, just in the short term, I th- the, re- the reason I picked it is in the short term, I think it went over well. Uh, it was out of the media cycle quickly, and I think they can chalk it up as a win for now. Uh, I think there's still uh, details to be determined. I think, though, one thing that's important to note is that they, like, who's their winning audience on this? Because the people who, really like, are the hardcore pipeline lovers of the world are just never going to support Justin Trudeau, whether he, like, gets eight pipelines built or zero pipelines built or dismantles every pipeline in Canada. They're just, they just hate him kind of on principle, and it's, the pipeline is a rationale, and it's just partisanship, right? Like, I think, to some degree, the people who would otherwise be most pleased by this decision aren't going to be, and he's really open himself up to the risk of alienating a lot of his soft support that really brought him over the top in the last election. I think there is that risk, but I think it goes sort of both ways. A lot of people view pipelines as like hyper-partisan, uh, be it the conservatives are, you know, all for the pipeline, get every pipeline in the ground, as opposed to the NDP or effectively never, never build any pipelines. Though it depends who you talk to in the NDP, of course. A- absolutely, but sort of the base that we're talking about, the eco-activists. Yeah. Who in are Vancouver, especially. In, in the Vancouver area, who are incredibly against pipelines. Um, but I think the liberals broadly, you know, their, uh, their voting coalition is centrist. And I think centrists are pretty warm to pipelines yeah. across Canada. I think public uh, polling supports that. Yeah, but I, I think the marginal liberal voter on this is more likely to get turned off than turned on. Because the people who are broad centrists, I think, like, had he not gotten any pipelines built... It probably wouldn't have been the end of the world for them. Not the end of the world, but it goes towards their economic credibility. Yeah. That you want to be seen as the person who can manage the economy, particularly as our economy is rather stagnant at the moment. Um, So having some economic credibility, although it's uh, it's with a base of people who are not super concerned about the pipeline, they're still concerned about the economy generally. And seeing you do things that are good for the economy, like building pipelines and major development, I think goes towards that. That also helps to explain sort of the LNG facility that they uh, they approved earlier this year as well. Yeah. 
though I think that one's not even it's pretty economically marginal if beneficial at all it seems to be uh, I mean, a little I, contentious but, I think your definition no, you, of economically marginal is yeah. revolutionary but uh, revolutionary for the Canadian economy but any of these major billion dollar projects would be economically significant for their regions fair enough so uh, do you have, what's your what's your next piece on the list there so number two on my list is uh census i think the census was perhaps the easiest win ever to occur in political history and i think they played it off rather well uh they were able to tout figures of like 99 percent and these like ridiculous stories of the website crashing <laughs> I actually, I actually like... honestly i thought that was the best piece of spin of all time <laughs> like that their like web infrastructure was not actually able to handle the traffic but they were like oh they were so enthusiastic that they broke the website it was a uh, it's very cute spin and we got know. ddosed by eager canadians yeah. <laughs> so that's actually you know i agree that that's like an unambiguous win it's like they should never have gotten rid of the long form census obviously but you know yeah undoing that was like such an easy political win and such a like good brand synergy for them that yeah. You know, they're the, the evidence-based government and everything. Uh, no, I, I can't argue with that in the slightest. Yeah, I don't think there's much more to be said about the census. Uh, the opponents of the census, I think, are few and far between, well, and the, you know, even, they're the, they're even the on the right side who, of the political spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Like, certainly the people who are, you know, really, like, anti-long-form census are the same people who are, you know, going to talk your ear off about the gold standard for, like, you know, 50 <laughs> minutes, what, at, you know, line at the grocery store. I'll just follow you around talking about the gold standard. Anyway. <laughs> and then uh, my number one isn't any particular policy. Um, but it's just uh, the liberal propaganda machine. Oh, you mean their uh, their messaging? Their the liberal nice messaging. Put that. Uh, the selfie pre or the selfie prime minister, and you know shirtless Trudeau coming out of the wave pool or the beach or where wherever he's wanted. Uh, it's like that Daniel Craig shot from uh, from Casino Royale. Coming out of the waves. That's yeah. all that was missing. Although I will say he's uh, he's not that fit. Um, not Daniel Craig fit. No, no, not quite. No, con- he is, uh, he is Better a hair. 45 to 50 year old man. So yeah. what can you do? Yeah, I think just the propaganda overall. I think they're incredibly effective at turning the prime minister into a meme. I think uh, as in the United States, meme politics is uh, large these days. I think people like to be able to communicate their political views, uh, particularly popular political opinions. And as the liberal political opinion is really the consensus now, people like to brag about having met the prime minister in a way that we haven't seen with Canadian politicians ever. Yeah, it's, it's like a lot of the, the personal image and, you know, around Obama, uh, in two, especially in 2008, but even continuing now. Uh, except I think Trudeau's image is a little warmer even, a little more personal. Um, you're more likely to have a selfie with Justin than you are with the, than with the president. Though that said... We live in Ottawa, so uh, our our control group is probably skewed here. Uh, but no, I think you're right that like they've really, really, really succeeded at making the the prime minister uh, eminently shareable um, and making him a sort of object of not only um, affection but also of just fascination uh, for lots and lots of Canadians. And I I think that you are starting to see that fray around the edges a little bit. Um, but they've certainly had the best honeymoon that anyone could, I think, ever credibly wish for in government. Yeah, I think that's true. What I'd add is sort of just the celebrity culture aspect of it. I don't know. I can't think of anyone who's ever wanted a Justin Trudeau selfie and doesn't have one. 
In fact, I know conservatives that have gotten them inadvertently <laughs> by literally being in his presence and him being like, hey, do you want a selfie? And they're like, ah, it feels bad to reject the prime minister. Like, I, I should say yes. And they end up with them. They get posted to Facebook. Like, Though you think about that, how effective is that as political advertising? Right? Like, your friends. Like, everyone knows word of mouth is the best advertising for anything. And when you have your friends posting on, you know, their, their public Facebook profiles and stuff, uh, like a picture of them smiling with the prime minister, it's an, it's an implicit political endorsement. I mean, obviously, for conservative staffers, less so. Yeah, it's that social um, proof. Exactly. It's very, very powerful social proof and sort of who your communication uh, leaders are. And you look to your friends fundamentally for different parts of your worldview. Yeah. And so when your friends are all effectively endorsing this politician, you're much more likely to be swayed by it. Yeah, that is actually pretty sharp. I never really thought about it that way before, but uh, yeah, that's definitely a good point. So those are my top three. What uh, what are yours? So I'd have to say they're ascending order as well uh, from, from three, two to one. Uh, the, their budget earlier this year, I think, was a win for them in that it basically fell off the radar within a couple of days. Uh, we didn't really talk a whole lot about the liberal budget. And when you're a government proposing a budget, that is is a pretty big win, to be honest. Um, so that, I, I'd have to just give it to them. Like, getting your, your landmark piece of legislation through the year kind of in without too much uh, cackling or squawking is... Uh, it's pretty impressive, so I'll give them on that. Uh, number two, unless you have a... No, I oh, yeah, think a, that's pretty straightforward. Number two, I'd say the Syrian refugees, honestly. Uh, you got to give it to them on that. Uh, that went pretty well. I mean, there were some initial kind of um, uh, difficulties getting them over here and everything at first, but I think uh, broadly the experience has been pretty positive. There's not a lot of you know horror stories coming out of this. In fact, we, we get the sort of like bi-weekly CBC story on a Syrian refugee opening a chocolate shop or something, which is, you know, that's fantastic. Like, that's awesome that they're coming over here and integrating and, you know... Yeah, they, they, Trudeau just had the piece the other day at, uh, I believe it was a convenience store that yeah. had either employed the family or the family was working in and sort of broke into tears and was very emotional about it. I believe the individual he was meeting with was the uh, the first person he shook hands with right. uh, when he got off the plane at That Pearson. said, yeah, that I remember seeing, uh, seeing that on Twitter, but... Uh, one thing that was kind of funny about that is uh, they said, oh, the one-year anniversary of the first Syrian refugee to come to Canada. And it was like, well, no, it's not, is it? Uh, as much as, as the Harper government didn't love trumpeting it too much, uh, they actually brought over a decent amount of Syrian refugees as well. Um, though I noticed that they, they weren't particularly quick to correct the record on that. I guess they're, they're not so proud of it as they used to be. Yeah, it's sort of one of these nuanced, uh, nuanced talking points where in, in the fine print it's of you know, our batch of our 25,000 promised ones. Yeah. Here are the ones that we're going to technically count as I think our they said own initiative. The first, though. I, I recall that being the language in the tweet, which is, uh, that's not great, uh, if so, but... But, yeah, I mean, it's not like historically Canada has never brought over Syrian refugees no. for yeah. the past hundred year, yeah. years, right? Yeah. So... But yeah, I, I definitely give them the win on that, and I'm very, very happy to, to give them the win on that. I think it's, like, unambiguously a pretty good thing. Uh, if I do, if I want to say number one, their big policy win of the year as well is probably the CCB, the Canada Child Benefit. Can um, I just say I hate the branding on that? I think going from the UCCB, the Universal Child Care Benefit, to the CCC or CCB, yeah, is just terrible. It's confusing. Like a minor tweak on this program and trying to make it your own 
from from a communications angle, I think is sort of baffling that they didn't come up with a more original name for it. Uh, I think that's fair, but at the same time, the universal child care benefit sounds very generic, where the Canada child benefit sounds both, you know, made in Canada, and also, I think it's... When you name something, like, you know, put the country name in it, I think you're, you're more likely to see it stick around. It sort of constructs a little more buy-in around it, making it more of a national institution. I don't know if that's that's true, but I'd speculate that's part of the reason they went that direction. Also, uh, there is a sort of historical tendency in the Liberal Party when they're in government to sort of cement uh, the Liberal Party as the Canadian state. The natural governing party. The natural governing party, Absolutely. exactly. Uh, so I think that's that's sort of an angle you're seeing there. But just on the merits, I think the Canada Child Benefits are really good. Uh, as an NDP, I'm also a fan of uh, universal daycare, but I think you know the empiric literature on this is is contested enough that I'm I'm happy to see the CCB as as a good thing. Um, in terms of its improvement over the UCCB, it's not that different, is it? I mean, it's it's simply I think a little more generous, and you don't get taxed back in. Or it's it's progressively targeted instead of taxed back at higher brackets. Where it loses out though is that if I'm not mistaken, it's not indexed to inflation. Um, so the costs uh, decrease by what roughly two percent a year, and unless it's indexed to infl- inflation, it will gradually diminish in its value ah. and come back to sort of the baseline of substantially less of a chunk of the budget. Um, so it has this sort of catch twenty two built into it. Oh well, that's that's I kind of feel dumb for picking it now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of one of these small details that's uh, buried in the fine print. Yeah, well, uh, there we go. Um, do you want to talk about uh, about things we didn't like? Yeah, shall I start? we're always happy to talk about that. <laughs> start off with my uh, my bottom three. I tried to pick slightly unconventional ones rather than go for the obvious. Uh, my number three is Kathleen Wynne, uh, simply being associated with Justin Trudeau. I think she is so incredibly unpopular. Last I saw, she had something like a sixteen percent approval rating, which is absolutely abysmal. Uh, I think even the partisan liberals I know think that she is running Ontario into the ground. Um, or that she's running the Liberal Party into the ground. Collectively. Uh, See, w- that, w- which is the biggest sin is an open question, of course, for uh, for many people. But. but that's the thing. She is taking every opportunity and was really substantial during the campaign and being by Justin Trudeau's side. I think that's got to hurt the federal liberals uh, across Ontario. I think the further she runs the party into the ground, the more you're going to see when when the tide eventually turns on uh, Justin Trudeau, particularly because of uh, some of the environmental policies. That some of the environmental policies championed by Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne are sort of being transposed to federal equivalents now uh, with the carbon tax and sort of shutting down coal-fired power plants. And these have had... Uh, arguably an incredibly detrimental effect on a lot of Ontarians' lives. There's, You can dispute the merits of the environmental side of it, um, and I'm sure you'd love to, but the fact of the matter is hydro in Ontario is incredibly unaffordable. Oh, yeah, I mean, look It's what the I, number I, one I, issue. Yeah, when I moved here from Saskatchewan, my eyes popped out of my, my skull when I saw my first hydro bill. So seeing the, I think for a lot of Ontarians, seeing the federal government recreate the same policies that they sort of have a bad taste in their mouth with uh, from the Ontario provincial liberals is bound to hurt them. That said, though, the Ontario liberals at every turn, I mean, it's not so much that the policy is terrible to begin with. It's that the execution of it is perpetually bungled. (laughs) 
So for for with the Green Energy Act, it's and with its sort of antecedents in, in past decades, is they lock themselves into these long term contracts that just suck. But here's the thing. You have to wonder how many, and the answer is a lot, how many of the same people behind Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne are now in federal politics. Yeah, no, and it's, it was well documented like that a lot of uh, Queen's Park staffers uh, left Queen's Park to come work in Ottawa uh, when the, the federal liberals won the election. Though I, I think I just want to single out while we're on the subject of the Ontario liberals. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of policy that they've put out the last year or so, and my favorite, I mean, just the absolute worst, is uh, really the hydro bills? It's the uh, the Ontario like low income like uh, heating rebate, right? Oh uh, yes. Yeah. So this is like supposed to be like an anti poverty program, right? And it's opt in first of all, which right there uh, you're not going to hit a lot of the low income people that you're you're trying to help. Uh, and second, I think of its twelve million dollar budget, something like eleven point seven million dollars of it was spent on advertising the program. Yes. So because of a poor program design choice, in making it opt in instead of opt out, uh, or just you know automatic, you had to spend so much money advertising it that it, it's almost just throwing money away, like with with very little benefit to to people who are actually paying hydro bills. So that I think is is sort of case in point for the sort of problems that um the geniuses over at queen's park were, were cooking up when they were there so yeah absolutely agreed um and number two is uh bardish chagger and Marion montseff just you know that's funny because uh i think i think we were thinking probably the same thing here <laughs> looking at my list so i'm not even gonna pick on electoral reform um although there is a lot to be said there i think one of the most pivotal moments um in trudeau's year so far has been his because it's 20 2015 at that time uh sort current of that, year as John yeah, puts it yeah as it's the because it's the current year um and there was much ado made about uh having the gender parity cabinet um and then when you, again when you looked in the fine print you saw that uh some of the women in cabinet were disproportionately ministers of state yeah. they were in fact getting paid less okay they rushed through some order and councils eight months later in order to make them full ministers uh, so there wasn't sort of these second-tier ministers anymore. Um, but what you're seeing with Bardish Chagger, um, with Mary Monsef, and a couple other, notably of the female ministers, is they are given uh, hard files, unpopular files, and they are not getting the support and the direction from the prime minister's office that I feel like they should. I feel like a couple of them have been left out in the cold. Mary Monsef. Mary Monsef, I, I feel bad for her because, yeah, she got hung out to dry. Yeah, she's not the mastermind behind the direction of the electoral reform strategy going forward here. It's a fundamentally, I'd say on this file, it rests with the PM what choice, what direction they want to take in terms of electoral reform. And they gave her this file that she was set up to fail on. Yeah. Like, Bardish Chegger, I think, is in a similar position, whereas a relatively junior minister, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, had got a taste of fisheries and oceans and wanted to do that rather than be a house leader. So well, she I think was... I heard a lot of, of talk that he, the other house leaders had a lot of trouble working with Dominic Lebois, which, as a, as a former resident of his writing in New Brunswick, does not surprise me in the slightest. I And I understand that. Um, I don't think the relations are that much better with Bardish. Uh, obviously, LeBlanc burnt a couple bridges with, what was it, Motion 10? Six. Motion yeah, 6. Yeah, for context, that was uh, right before, if anybody remembers in uh, the illustrious annals of 2016, Elbowgate in, uh, earlier this year, 
this is kind of what kicked off that that whole yeah. saga it was this very overreaching government motion in the house to basically strip the opposition of a lot of its ability to kind of uh, stall legislation uh which you know you you might think coming from a you know non-parliamentary background oh that sounds good like you don't want legislation to get stalled like but it's pretty much the only po- meaningful power that the opposition really has is to kind of grind out the legislative calendar so it, it was seen as being basically like a declaration of war uh and the opposition parties did not take it well and uh the, the government later ended up withdrawing it and as a result eventually well as a result partially of hunter tutu and some of his indiscretions um Dominic LeBlanc got a taste of Fisher's notions, which is roughly what his father did, and really enjoyed it. It's Frankly, exactly what his father did, yeah. I think being uh, Fisher's and Oceans Minister is a hell of a lot more enjoyable than being House Leader uh, in Parliament, sort of to deal with pushing through the legislative agenda yeah. in what's sometimes a very adversarial position. So Bartosz Chagger was slotted into the role, and there have been allusions made between her and Paul Calandra now. Because she is now the front man for the government. Yeah, the robotic talking point machine. All the terrible, terrible, terrible talking points, which is... Brings you to, to number one, doesn't which it? Which is a perfect segue yeah. to number one, <laughs> cash for access. Yeah. Uh, to surprise absolutely no one. I think it's been uh, Rob Fife and... Uh, or Bob Fife and uh, Stephen Chase for the Globe Mail who've really been beating this horse to death, uh, rightfully so. In a good way. In a very good way. Uh, and the result of it in question period has been Bartis Chagger standing up and giving the most robotic, inane talking points imaginable, as Justin Trudeau is nowhere to be found. It, I found it interesting how the talking points have changed also over the last couple of weeks to month, uh, especially the, the recent one where they've said, uh, what is it now? Uh, they're t- taking the cash for access meetings to stand up for the middle class, which is just like, what? Like they're lobbying... It doesn't make actually any logical sense if you stop to think about it, and it's frankly just quite insulting. See, that's not even the the line that bothered me the most, was almost a Nixonian line where they say, Ooh. we followed the rules, and if we followed the rules, there can be no conflict the of interest. President does it, it's not illegal. <laughs> that, that's roughly what that's saying, is if we followed the letter of the law... No matter the loopholes we find in the law, it can't be a conflict of interest. And especially when you're in charge of setting the rules, you'd think that, you know, avoiding the appearance of impropriety is pretty important. But I'm actually pretty surprised to the degree to which they've dug in on this. Usually when this kind of thing comes to light, there's a, like a flurry of, of reform and so some, some stuff is tweaked around the margins. But they're not even, I mean, even Kathleen Wynne did this. I mean... It took her a while to change did. positions on it as well, it though. It did. Uh, and maybe liberals we'll are shift. very defensive of their fundraising habits. <laughs> like, very, very defensive it's of their It's almost like they've gotten in trouble over this before. Yeah, it seems to be a chronic Achilles heel, where when you come into government, Trudeau tried to set things out on the right foot with his uh, sort of own personal dictum of, here are the rules, I'm going to lay them out. And that's essentially what's dogging him now, yeah. is... Prime Minister, these were the guidelines you set in place, and you're breaking your own guidelines. Yeah. You're breaking the appearance of conflict of interest that you laid out. Yeah, one, one of my favorites is, is just hearing from liberal partisans, oh, you know, the, the classic, l'alternance, as we call it in French, uh, the, the classic line, uh, you know, they did it too. And I, I never tire of reminding people that the website was realchange.ca, not harperdidittoo.ca. I mean, in terms of Harper did it too, I think the conservatives, the conservatives, of course, you're in power for 10 years, you're going to get some uh, some fundraising issues. 
But generally, particularly in the last four years of mandate, the Conservatives really cleaned shop, got it together. They put in place some sort of institutional checks and balances to ensure that these types of fundraisers didn't happen. Ministers still went to fundraisers, but the, uh, the lists were vetted for anyone who's potentially conflict of interest or lobbying your department. I will say to the Liberals' credit that they are doing this as well, but they've had a couple instances where people register as a lobbyist the day of the fundraiser. Um, Yeah. It's not all their fault, but that's why I'm almost more mystified at their reaction, because it seems easy enough in cases like that to just get people mad at the lobbyists, right, and say, oh, we're going to crack down on lobbyists. But instead, they seem very anxious to... Keep the issue A on fundraising and B on them not doing anything, which strikes me as very politically odd. So the so here's the thing, the problem with the guy uh, re- registering as a fundraiser the next day, that one okay, or sorry, not as a fundraiser as a lobbyist. Um, the problem with that one isn't so much that the guy went went out there. It's that obviously we don't know what happened in the conversation. Um, but if the minister is willing to engage on policy files at uh, a fundraising or public event of this nature, right? what the talking point should be for all the ministers is, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that right now. Um, please contact my office. Yeah, that That's what you have to do. And there's literally staff that should be with the minister at nearly all times to sort of interject in these conversations and say, hey, we can't talk about policy files. Give the office a call. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows who knows if that's what they did or not? Sometimes people want to hype it up. Uh, hey, I met the met the minister well, or Well, it sounds the, by their own admission that they've been talking policy files at these things. I mean, that's what Trudeau effectively said yeah. uh, during his year-end uh, news. So, so just to to wrap this up a little bit. Uh, so you think this is the biggest failure they've had this year? Because I mean, it's 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 nasty and like I, I don't think it's a good thing for them, but I wouldn't say it's probably their their really biggest uh, failure this year. So I mean, obviously there are different metrics to quantify how one's going to fail, uh, be it failure in terms of comms or in terms of policy. I think this is one of the first things that's really putting a chink in the liberals' armor, and I think it's partly because of the liberal sort of standing narrative yeah. uh, with their treatment of money and the public purse so you think and this fundraising is, this and... is the kind of thing that's gonna like eventually bring them down it's a sort of floodgates kind of opening or yeah or whatever I mean, you want to call it ethics questions are incredibly detrimental to the ability of a government to hold the public's confidence yeah i'd say they take the steam out of government a lot quicker than uh bungled policy yeah. files sure that's that's probably fair um just to transition to the the three i want to talk about and actually I think there's a little bit of overlap, as I mentioned earlier, but the, the I think the third is probably just how ineffective they've been at managing parliament. Um, and part of that is the fact that they just have so many new MPs, you know, uh, rookie ministers as well. So they don't have a ton of people experienced in uh, legislative stick handling and all that. And to their credit, they've been avoiding bringing in a lot of old timers, um, you know that were around in the Chrétien Martin years, uh, which probably would have made their jobs a little easier in that respect. But I think, yeah, the fact that they, they've just really, really hit some snags in Parliament is uh, is not to their, their credit. I mean, some of it is their own creation. Yeah, um, well, the Senate kind of is now an X-factor in a way that it hasn't traditionally been. There have been so many bizarre stories coming out of the Senate of senators suddenly asserting their authority on bills and saying, you know, 
we're going to send this back to the house because we fundamentally disagree with it, which is essentially unheard of in the past 10 years. Yeah. Um, so it's very much an X factor. There were other ones like the near miss on uh, the Air Canada bill. Yeah, and that was just pure like amateurism. There, that was just like, they didn't have the votes. Their 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 whip wasn't counting, or they got they fell asleep at the switch. However, whichever cliche you want to use there, uh, it was just pure like incompetence, and they just screwed up on a major. And that's actually what uh, triggered them bringing in Motion Six, was because like they got angry that they sort of pissed all over themselves on it yeah they got burnt by it and the vote came down to a tie and uh the speaker had to vote and the speaker supported uh the liberals uh legislation yeah. which obviously. is what, what he's supposed to do like he didn't act improperly there obviously but yeah no just that, that sort of thing where they've clearly had a sort of tenuous uh, control over the legislative process and i think you know if you're an ambitious activist government you really need to milk those sitting days for all they're worth. Yeah. Uh, and I, we talked about Bartis Jagger earlier, and yeah, her role as House Leader, I think there, there's been something to be desired there. Yeah, House Leader is a very uh, tough position. It requires a lot of technocratic knowledge about the rules of Parliament and that sort of thing, Yeah, um, which is tough for a rookie MP to yeah. have. Yeah, well, I mean, you can have your staff, right? But, like, at the end of the day, like, if you're the, the person making the calls, like, you, you need to kind of have this stuff internalized to some degree. I was I was surprised at the choice, but you know that's that's fine. I'm not the one making them. So yeah, uh, usually it's a more I'm senior just, parliamentarian. I I am just here to make fun of them, really. <laughs> and the other issue uh, that I don't think they've they've handled particularly well is electoral reform. Um, this has kind of been an ongoing saga for them. They they came in, uh, you know, promised that this would be the last first past the post election, 2015, and since then have really dithered and sat on their hands. Uh, they've they've had the sort of messy patchwork of consultations with the minister kind of flying all over the place and really that not going very well as i remember there was this sort of spectacle in a calloway where uh they didn't have anybody who spoke uh in Uxut and uh it was, it was just kind of a mess like 20 people showed up and it was like during work hours and just really looked very out of touch and that sort of replicated itself across that entire tour there was the the committee that they've sort of had a fairly antagonistic relationship with uh, that was kind of contentious and just released its report suggesting a um, a proportional model with a referendum, which I, I personally at this point am, am kind of okay with. Um, but that sort of touched off this whole thing where they, they proposed using the Gallagher index to, uh, to sort of figure out exactly how proportional it should be. And that's basically, it's just basically a mathematical formula that says... Uh, basically defines proportionality within a certain window and like it's it's not really all that complicated but uh no it's not no mary amansef just sort of turned it into this war on math thing and looked like very very silly doing it um yeah this not been a good look for them yeah the talking points they had on this were horrendous i uh i actually thought it was her misspeaking to begin with when she first of all she attacked the committee uh, and the work that they did saying you guys didn't fulfill your mandate, even though uh, proposing a new system wasn't part of their mandate. Then you had this sort of bizarro scene with her in Parliament with the Gallagher Index pinned to the back of her speaking notes as sort of a covert way to try and get a prop in, which, of course, you're not allowed in Parliament. And she eventually yeah. got called out on that. Um, but then this line of like the committee proposed a mathematical formula yeah. as a voting system. Yeah, she made it sound like Skynet is going to be doing the elections from now on, basically, which is not really what the committee was proposing at all. But that's not even a spontaneous line. That was a liberal talking point I'm that actually, was in their committee response. You gotta that respect, was premeditated. you got to respect the hustle that someone actually got paid for that, though. Like, that's pretty awesome. Honestly, if I got paid to write stuff that bad, I would be, I would be sitting pretty happy. 
Yeah, yeah, you have to wonder sometimes yeah. about how this gets through the different layers of scrutiny, particularly on such a high-profile file that this is the talking point that they decided to settle on. I, I guess if someone uh, were to were to creep LinkedIn and look for people who uh, have history in uh, Minister Mary Monson's office uh, looking for new jobs, that would perhaps uh, be a way to find out if that <laughs> resulted in negative consequences for anyone. So if anybody's looking for a Christmas homework assignment... The worst part with it, too, is that uh, they effectively got two tries at it. They had her stand up in Parliament, do her bit, and then everyone on Facebook and Twitter were all ridiculing her. And they had, you know, the good 20-minute window between that and her scrum in the lobby of Parliament where she stood up and did the exact same thing yeah. for the Parliamentary Press and, Gallery. And you know what? They got the, torn apart. This wasn't even really the worst thing for them in the last two weeks because after that, they released the My Democracy survey. Which everyone made fun of for being like a BuzzFeed quiz. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as people sort of like made it out to be. I sort of was expecting the worst. And when I eventually took it, I was like, oh, okay, that wasn't like so bad. They just sort of wanted like to get, you know, information about people's values that they wanted in the electoral system, which I think is a good place to start. But the problem is they didn't twofold. Start there. Yeah, first of all, they didn't start there. This is a year later, and like, now we're talking about it. And B, uh, they had this like weird results section where it was like, you know, which kind of electoral reform person are you? And it was just like the weirdest thing. And they got pretty rightly mocked for that. And especially because like it sort of really reinforced. We were talking about image earlier and kind of the, the image they've projected. The dark side of the sort of familiarity that they've had with, with people and the sort of like very intimate sort of social media presence that they've had with, with a lot of Canadians is that people have criticized them being kind of vapid and shallow. And this sort of having this like BuzzFeed style quiz like really, really, really feeds into that that backlash. So I, yeah. I think that was very poorly judged on their part. All right, what's your uh, what's your number one failure? Of so the year? so this is this is kind of uh, my my sort of uh, socialist bugbear here. But I think that the foreign policy stuff has just been a disaster apart from uh, the Syrian refugees, which I think was good. Um, but I want to talk especially about like the Saudi arms deal. I think that that was like they've really, really, really. Uh, demonstrated essential moral bankruptcy on this kind of from day one. Uh, you have Justin Trudeau in the sort of lead up to the last election, you know, calling the the light armored vehicles that is for yes yeah, for context, uh, Canada or a Canadian uh, arms company is selling fifteen billion dollars worth of light armored vehicles to the Saudi government. Light armored vehicles are, are beefy, beefy kind of like vehicles that are lightly armored and have weapons and are you know the, you could really really screw some people up with those things. To be fair. We don't put the weapons on them. No, we do not. But uh, they're mounted. It, basically, the idea is that these things are not jeeps, right? No. To call them jeeps is to be like pretty willfully, I think, disingenuous. You know that your party had the same position. On I that, right? I am aware of that, and I've been critical of them on that. It's in the one past. of these. I, I totally agree. But you, it's about jobs for both people. Uh, but and, and you know what? The arms contract is one thing, and the jeeps thing is one thing, and like that's you know understandable your sort of imperative as a politician is to is to you know keep jobs that are already on the books at the very least but for me what really ticked me off was the easing of export restrictions that they had after that there was a revision of kind of their their guidelines on 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 uh, export restrictions and arms sales and they sort of watered down a lot of the language that had traditionally been there about human rights and uh like making sure that weapons and uh, like vehicles and stuff don't get into the hands of human rights abusers so it's one thing to sort of respect the contract that had already been mostly negotiated and finalized though you know once again they did lie about that too uh once defendio actually like issued the export permits uh but it's the revising the standards downward to make it easier to do in the future that really really ticked me off so i think that for me was uh 
probably the story that's personally angered me the most in the last year. I mean, just from my my take of that one, I was sort of surprised when they softened the language of the uh, export controls. I interpreted that probably as a bureaucratic initiative, more so than a government-led initiative. Yeah. Um, just having worked in a minister's office, often, particularly in a new administration, I was really surprised to see them make such a change while they were taking yeah. heat on... Uh, on the file as they were already. Yeah. So honestly, it really struck me as sort of a rookie mistake. Yeah. Where they signed off on a file that the that wasn't sort of clearly explained to them or that they didn't read correctly and that had this changed language and they didn't notice it. Yeah, that's possible. But I think that that they weren't willing to sort of like then either rescind or defend the decision at all and kind of just pretend it didn't happen, which is sort of what they've been doing at every step of the way along the, this kind of thing where like. They'll just sort of, like, deny until it's no longer tenable, in which case they'll be like, oh, uh, it was actually done, like, the whole time we had no control over it. It, it. Like, that might be true, but the sort of pattern of obfuscation really doesn't help their case and makes them look dishonest. And, yeah, once again, I just think, like, the deliberate softening of, of human rights uh, language in our export restrictions is pretty unconscionable. Uh, whether it comes from the bureaucracy or the politicians, I think like if you're the government, like yes, the you know the the permanent bureaucracy does has a lot of power in its own way, but like ultimately the the people at the top of the org chart are calling the shots there, and I, I'm very disappointed that they uh, they couldn't make that decision. So uh, now, there. so now I'm going to have you justify how this is the biggest failure of the year. That's fair. Uh, I think like I I'm pretty clear for me that this is a you know a personal bugbear. Uh, I think it's it's just kind of like unconscionable. But also, if we want to talk more broadly, I think foreign policy has really not been a strength for them. Stéphane Dion is not handling the file super well. Uh, I think he uh, came in with a little bit too of a high-minded and uh, like intellectualized approach to foreign policy that I think hasn't really proven. Uh, who, who did he quote in one of his first speeches? I think it was Max Weber. Oh, that Max Weber sounds like Stéphane Dion. And you know, he, he comes up with this whole responsible conviction thing or whatever it was. Um, it's just like now it seems kind of incredible and especially I, I to once again sort of uh, to come to Van Diel's defense a little bit there uh, his job has been enormously complicated and it's only going to get more complicated over the next six months but he really has not handled it well and especially now in sort of a world where Canada is you know one of these uh, the last uh, bastions of, of liberalism um, you know in, in a populist world uh, you have to wonder how Canada exactly is going to do that when you sort of don't really have very clear leadership or stated principles at the very top. Um, and especially, you know, if, you, if the stated principles being what they are, they're not even really respected, uh, which I think concerns me for how well Canada is going to be able to do that job internationally for the next couple of years. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, the situation's his job, Stefan Zion's job has gotten a lot harder. Um, with the change in American uh, yeah. presidency. Yeah, that's what, I, the, yeah, what I was alluding to. Uh, did you think he actually like makes it through the next year with his job? Stefan? Um, probably. I think there'll be a lot of reticence to swap him out of the cabinet. Um, just for... Kind of his his baggage. Yeah, just he the is, optics. He is human baggage for the party at this point, I think. <laughs> but Just the optics of it. Uh, I look forward to maybe a cabinet shuffle um, early in january i see I that think, as pretty likely yeah i think it's conceivable like one year in they sort of have a sense of what's working what doesn't yeah um and so 
look for maybe Mary Monsef to be first on the chopping block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although they might be a little reticent to uh, move her out just because of sort of the optics of it. The optics of removing sort of this uh, young... Yeah, that's sort of the, the problem with the, the kind of like youthful image they tried to project there is that now it looks really bad if they sort of double back on it. Yeah, and if they like remove a couple of their younger members of cabinet who aren't performing as well and then put them in for what, liberal old guard? Or do you give someone else yeah. a chance? Like I think they it's are going to be a little hesitant. Um, but it's, I mean, it's very possible. Yeah. I, I personally wouldn't be surprised to see Christopher Freeland uh, move up to, to foreign affairs uh, over Stefendion at some point and see Stefendion kind of shuffled sideways into something where he can't put his foot in his mouth at sort of an international level, at least. If, if he goes to, like, I don't know, like, you know, veterans or something and, you know, he, he's in Charlottetown, like, once in a while just saying something ridiculous, like, it's not so much damage. So, I, I don't know. I think that could happen. Yeah, Stefendion's always just been sort of a weird fit for sort of the hawkish nature of uh, the foreign affairs or global affairs portfolio. Um, it's nearly impossible to imagine him sitting across the table from Lavrov and, <laughs> you know, expressing Canada's stance on Russian intervention in the world. It's it's basically inconceivable. So he, he'd be high on my personal list, um, but he must be there for some reason. Yeah. So I, I think those, those are my top two as well. Probably Dion and, and Monsef are, are probably gone, I think within six months. Dion maybe a bit longer. Yeah. Well, I mean, you only do one shuffle. You're not yeah. doing, you're not doing two shuffles in, in one six, year. Yeah. In one year. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you make your cut, you pick your new lineup and you, uh, you set it and forget it for the next two. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh, I think we're probably not going to make too many more prognostications about 2017 because, uh, if you had asked me last December, what do you think is going to happen in 2016? I would have, uh, and, re- and recorded me saying it, I would look pretty dumb right now. Yeah, 2016's been a, a hell of a year. Yeah, it really has. Um, and in two, 2017, well, we'll start recording episodes again in January. Uh, we're going to bring you uh, probably a, a little more humor than, than was uh, this, this sort of somber, more structured episode. I think uh, we, we, we might have over-prepared a little bit here and, and brought, too many, uh, brought too many speaking notes. Uh, we'll probably try to keep it a little faster and looser in the future, uh, but yeah, hopefully you'll 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 join us in January, and uh, we'll, we look forward to to talking to you guys then. Thanks so much for listening. Absolutely. Oh, Take also, care. you can follow us at at shortpantspod, and Etienne, can people find you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, at ab for Alberta Etienne, and I'm uh, at Laurenti Carr. So uh, thanks everyone, and uh, enjoy your Christmases. <laughs>